If doctors told us that we'd made a breakthrough on COVID-19, we would rejoice. We'd feel hope that we could live our lives again, get back to work, back to doing what we want. Well, masks are a ticket to that freedom. We can help protect others and save lives by covering our noses and mouths, which is how the virus mainly spreads. Until there's a vaccine, grab the breakthrough that's already here. When we're out, it's masks on. A message to help keep you safe. Brought to you by the Ad Council. February 1901. If we had waited for the National League to do something for us, we would have remained a minor league forever. The American League will be the principal organization of the country within a very short time. Mark my prediction. Ben Johnson. Byron Bancroft Ban Johnson was a big man with even bigger ambitions. A professor's son, Johnson became a sports writer for the Cincinnati Commercial Gazette, then took over a struggling minor league circuit called the Western League in 1894 and made it a financial success. In 1900, he changed its name to the American League and began to talk of moving east to challenge the big city monopoly of Albert Goodwill Spaulding's troubled National League. He promised honest baseball, cheaper ticket prices, and a wholesome family atmosphere. At first, the National League owners simply ignored him. When he asked to address their annual meeting, they kept him waiting in the hall, then adjourned without even giving him a hearing. It was a major miscalculation. Johnson was humorless and dictatorial. He looked, one reporter said, as if he had been weaned on an icicle. But he was also able, resourceful, and determined. When the National League dropped four of its less profitable teams, Johnson saw his chance. He established new clubs in Boston, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Washington. Snapped up newly unemployed players then began raiding active National League rosters. Lured by an average of $500 more per season, 111 National League players jumped to Ban Johnson's brand-new American League, including the great pitchers Cy Young and Rube Waddell and the notorious John McGraw. By the end of the 1902 season, even Spalding's Guide to Baseball admitted that the American League has more star players and can furnish a better article of baseball than the National League. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey there, everybody. How are you? My name is Tim. Tim Hamlin, that is, and uh, I am your host, your congenial host, the uh, hostess with the mostest, if you will. Uh, and uh, of course, it's Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is uh, devoted to what used to be in professional sports. It's our weekly duty uh, for us to uh, join you uh, to uh, help you uh, go back, way back in this case, this week in time. As we uh, try to uh, remember and regale and uh, roll around in and learn maybe a few things along the way 
about various things in the realm of pro sports history um, and culture and all that stuff and uh, and uh, enjoy, learn and um, uh, just uh, add to the trove uh, of uh, of interest and uh, curiosity uh, that we uh, like to serve up for you in audio form. Uh, into your earbuds. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, if it's your first time here, welcome aboard. Uh, if you've been here before, thanks for coming back. Uh, as you know, we uh, kind of go back and forth uh, across various sports, uh, various points in time, uh, obviously things that are recently departed, uh, but all the way back to some of the things that are, are you know, arguably historical and and, and sort of dusty uh, and maybe more... Um, uh, forensic, so to speak. Uh, it doesn't really matter when, uh, and it doesn't really matter what. We just kind of get into it, especially if there's a good story attached. And uh, this week is a really good example of going into the Wayback Machine. Uh, in this case, 1900, way back when, yes. Uh, while it seems like that may be a little sort of uh, uh, ancient, uh, given today's modern sports uh, cornucopia that we love and enjoy, Um as we've learned in all of our various explorations, there are lots of different themes that are literally, uh, they, they keep repeating themselves. Uh, and contraction, for example, uh, something that we see in, in leagues uh, all the time, uh, was very much front and center, perhaps maybe for the first uh, most, uh, I guess, explosive uh, example. Uh, in our episode, in our conversation this week with Bob Bailey, he, a Sabre, uh, longtime Sabre member and the author of a, a fascinating article that's part of a really equally fascinating book uh, that just came out from our friends at the University of Nebraska Press. The book is called Sabre 50 at 50. And Sabre, of course, is the Society uh, for American Baseball Research. Uh, and this is just this tome uh, that just came out in September. Uh, it's basically kind of like an ESPN 30 for 30 thing, but done in written form. And it features 50 of perhaps some of the most uh, interesting and representative writings uh, in Sabre's history. That is the the the, uh, the repository, if you will, of some of the best uh, research in the sport of baseball. Bob Bailey um, has penned an article, actually from 1990, uh, but is included in this book. Uh, and that's it's the it provides the uh, the background for what we're going to talk about today, as you heard in a little clip. Uh, it's we go back to 1900 and the discussions around the National League at that time, the burgeoning National League, up to 12 teams and having become essentially uh, the center of professional baseball itself had being have been having become, uh, you know, uh, sort of the uh, I guess the gelling, if you will, of, of a relatively ragtag amateur to professional uh, series of, uh, of uh, events over the decades prior uh, to become what was literally the center of professional baseball. And professional was kind of still in quotes, really, because it really hadn't, it was just starting to gel around this time. And in 1900, the National League was kind of in trouble. They, they were had, had bloated to 12 franchises and not all of them were strong, and there were a bunch of other things going on, including competition, as you got a hint of from that clip, featuring the uh, the dulcet tones of the late John Chancellor, he of uh, NBC Nightly News fame back in the day, and then the narrator from the essential 10-part now series, baseball series, uh, by Ken Burns uh, from the 1990s. And that's from inning number two in that series. 
And it literally gets into or is sort of hints at the contraction of the National League in 1900 and the arrival and the opening of door, shall we say, for a new league, what soon became known as the American League and Ban Johnson taking advantage. And obviously before the, the decade of, of uh, the, the aughts was out, uh, the Grand Alliance, if you will, the uh, the master uh, relationship between what is now still today, the National League and this, in this case, new and fledgling American League. And this is sort of uh, all of the intrigue that's wrapped up in the story this week. And in particular, our guest Bob Bailey is going to talk about not only the reduction of the four teams to go from 12 to eight, but also as part of those four teams, by the way, those would be um, the elimination of teams in uh, Baltimore, uh, Cleveland, Washington, D.C., and Louisville. And in particular, uh, let us see here. We make sure we get this, uh, this, these statistics right. The, the teams were uh, the Cleveland Spiders, which we've talked about in a previous episode, uh, the Baltimore Orioles, the uh, one of the original, one of the original versions, the 19th century version uh, that played from 1882 to 1899. No relation to the current franchise, and the um, Washington Senators themselves, also the 19th century version, and no relation to. Uh, the various forms of senators uh, or nationals, for that matter, uh, that came uh, ever since. Um, all of those teams, the Cleveland Spiders, uh, the then Baltimore Orioles, uh, the uh, then Washington Senators, and the last team that also got uh, uh, squeezed out but also never came back uh, to, to see baseball ever again on the top-tier professional level, the Louisville Colonels. All of those four teams actually joined the National League from this thing called the American Association a number of years earlier, which we've talked about in some previous episodes. Um, but the National League had basically assembled lots of different things, including these four former American Association franchises, and now found themselves to be uh, a little too big for their own uh, their own success and their own um, financial uh capabilities. And we're going to get into the sort of the the drama around how the league had to kind of trim down, why that was the case, why these four franchises and why Louisville of those four essentially wound up becoming the odd man out going forward. Uh, as we'll learn in our conversation with Bob in just a few moments, uh, Louisville was very much in the mix to ultimately go to the American League um, because as Ben Johnson uh, uh basically went uh, after uh, this contraction. They, he went after uh, at least three of those markets and and got created new franchises uh, in those markets that the National League contracted out of. So you saw teams now newly come into Baltimore, uh, into Washington, D.C., uh, and into Cleveland with the birth of the American League uh, for, for real in 1902, 1903 or so. Uh, but Louisville... Uh, it did indeed, there, there is evidence, there is historical evidence that there was uh, conversations in the case of telegrams and, and written correspondence and some other manners of, of, uh, of uh, discussion. Uh, but Louisville, alas, never sort of uh, uh, was able to get uh, its act together, nor uh, the American League's uh, attention uh, to finally uh, get uh, a renewed 
uh, top tier major league franchise. And and that was the story, the contraction of the Louisville uh, Colonels, uh, as well as the three other teams. As we get into uh, the National League in 1900, four teams out, basically, is kind of the the uh, uh, the phrase we can sort of uh, throw to this with our guest this week, Bob Bailey, uh, as we go back into uh, some seminal uh, stuff in uh, baseball's early and uh, very important history uh, this week in our conversation coming up in just a few moments time. Stay tuned. It's it's really interesting stuff. Uh, and we we always try to keep it interesting, of course. Um, what is also interesting, of course, uh, this year, this holiday season uh, will be unfortunately uh, like no other. Uh, and it's going to be interesting and challenging. Uh, and the gift giving thing is going to be uh, especially uh, difficult, especially if you're going to d- decide to to not necessarily shop in person or you want to order uh, from afar um, and uh, and have things shipped to you or to your loved ones or your friends. Uh, and uh, we're uh, here to help you in your hopefully earlier than usual holiday shopping for the sports fan uh, in your life. And, and if it's that particular type of sports fan, of course, the one like us who loves to revel in uh, all things forgotten and defunct, uh, and previously domiciled, well, you've come to the right place, not only in terms of content, of course, this little show, but also in terms of commerce. We've got some great sponsors, as uh, you may have heard if you've listened to some of these shows in the past. And we've got five of them here for you that we're just going to sort of list in order with some promo codes to get your holiday shopping done early and often. Use these promo codes, why don't you, to save some bucks and get the uh, sports fan in your life, sports fans in your life. The stuff that they really want. That is the realm of, of things from the world of defunct and forgotten sports franchises. So here we go. Get your pens and papers ready. Write this down because this is going to come in handy in the next couple of weeks for sure. Streakersports.com, the purveyors of sports culture. Lots of tremendous stuff across all kinds of forgotten leagues and other forms of pop slash sports culture. Promo code GOODSEATS gets you 15% off all of your purchases at streakersports.com sportshistorycollectibles.com. You want a better shopping experience for great memorabilia from all kinds of teams and leagues no longer with us, and you just can't handle eBay or just take that chance, especially when it comes to a holiday gift giving? Sportshistorycollectibles.com is the place to go. Check them out. Well photographed and uh, uh, just a treasure trove of stuff, new stuff every week. Promo code GOODSEATS will get you 15% off there at, again, sportshistorycollectibles.com. How about throwback jerseys? Yeah, sure, that and shirts as well. 503 Sports is the place for those. 503-sports.com. Again, 503- don't forget the dash, sports.com. we got a promo code there for you, and that's SEATS, and that's going to get you 10% off all of your purchases there at 503-sports.com. How about OldSchoolShirts.com? Yeah, you just want the T-shirts, but not only of teams and leagues uh, of your, but also how about from radio stations and malls and uh, amusement parks and all kinds of fun stuff, uh, things that you just uh, plain old forgot, but in classic uh, and well-crafted T-shirt form. It's OldSchoolShirts.com. 10% off all of your purchases when you use the promo code there, and that's Good Seats. Good Seats, that's the promo code at OldSchoolShirts.com. Com. And last but certainly not least, if you enjoy football memorabilia and you you love uh, mini helmets, uh, high quality, li- they're li- these are, these are these are a- 
strap. These are like legit helmets, but in miniature form, perfect for your uh, your bookshelf, your uh, your your desk, uh, for whatever your uh, football fans. Uh, 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 furniture uh, situations all about these wonderfully crafted mini helmets from 417 helmets.com. It's 417 helmets.com. It's collectible helmets and more. Uh, when you uh, go there early and often use the promo code good seats for 10% off all of your purchases. And it's not just football teams of current as well as the past, but also all kinds of other stuff. If you want your, uh, You've got a logo or a business or uh, some other uh, item or thing that you want to cherish and remember or just celebrate in uh, the form of a mini helmet and a smart looking one at that. Go to 417helmets.com and they'll create some custom stuff for you, too. And again, good seats. That promo code will get you 10 percent off all those things, too. So there you go. There's five great sites to check out early and often for your holiday shopping. And please, by all means, use those promo codes. You'll give us a few uh, dimes and nickels of love by doing so. And you'll also be showing our great sponsors that you not only listen to the show, but uh, you've been uh, moved not only to tears, but to actually go to the website and actually make a few purchases. We appreciate it. Our sponsors appreciate it. And um, we thank you kindly and wish you, of course, nothing but the best for the upcoming holiday season, challenging and unique as it may be wind up being all right well let's uh let's not uh dwell on uh, those challenges shall we let's get into some fun conversation this week with our guest bob bailey and let's get into uh oldie time baseball it's 1900 and the national league time of crisis time to contract let's get into the intrigue behind all of it here's our conversation please enjoy So I'm I'm thumbing through uh, the Saber 50 at 50 book from our friends at uh, University of Nebraska Press, uh, and this is just a tremendous trove. And I, with all due respect, I am not sort of a, uh, a, a traditional sort of baseball historian, nor even baseball statistic nerd or any of that kind of stuff, right? But I am always fascinated, at least for me, you know, about the situations like teams and leagues that aren't around. And lo and behold, I stumbled on your article for my guests. Uh, the early 90s about uh, the the reduction of teams in the National League in 1900. Now, that sounds musty and old and and like who cares, but it, it's a fascinating story uh, that I didn't know about. And that's why I reached out to you. And in particular, uh, having lived in the city of Louisville for a period of time over my uh, career, uh, to know that Louisville actually had a major league baseball team, didn't know that either. So, why don't we set up the story here? Tell me about your involvement in Sabre to start with and the genesis of this piece that's in this new 50 uh, for 50 book. Well, I've been uh, a member of uh, the Society for American Baseball Research since the uh, early 1980s. So it's closing in on 40 years uh, now. I, I stumbled on them at the Hall of Fame when the Sabre president was the historian at the Hall of Fame. In any event, when I uh, uh, joined, it was uh, fascinating to read the uh, uh, baseball research journals and the newsletters and whatnot. And and as you say, the, a whole new world opened up. Uh, uh, I grew up outside of uh, uh, New York City and knew all about the 50s, 60s, and 70s uh, of baseball there. But this, this goes back to the you know, 1840s when you, you talk about the pre-professional leagues and whatnot. And I 
was living in uh, Louisville at the time and uh, uh, stumbled on some uh, material written in the 40, 1940s about Louisville's uh, uh, major league period from 1876 to 1900 and just started to ask questions about it uh, and trying to figure out what went on, who were the players, were they a good team, a bad team. Uh, they, they turned out to be, in most years, a, a pretty terrible uh, team. But they did win one pennant. They were a founding team of the National League in 1876 and of the American Association in uh, 1882. So this story came up with, if they're not a member now of the, of the Major League, why not? So you just start thumbing through the newspapers and the microfilm reels to see if you can figure out what that story was. So, okay, before we sort of get into that story itself, what drives you to do so? Like, what's your, you know, what's your sort of background or your professional or your uh, familial or, or all that kind of stuff? Like, like why, why is this, why Sabre in the first place? And, and why, why does this become sort of, I'm going to call it an obsession, but, but, such such an interest for you to pursue uh, and learn more uh, with purpose. I, I've always been a, a, a big baseball fan. I, I I first started to follow it in the uh, uh, the newspapers around 1954 uh, when I was six years old, and it could spread out the the. Uh, there were two sections of the paper I read every day: the comics and the sports page. And I would I would look at the standings and watch the magic numbers at the end of the year. And there was always a lot of that because the Yankees were in the uh, 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 pennant races almost all that period, as were the Giants several years and the Dodgers a, a, a lot of years. Uh, so uh, I grew up uh, reading the uh, the Newark papers and on Sundays the New York papers uh, along uh, with it. And as I uh, went through, I had a, a, a dear, dear friend in uh, uh, growing up in a little town called Clark, New Jersey, uh, who ended up being a major sportscaster and broadcaster in Tokyo, uh, Wayne Grassick. And uh, we would uh, pass notes between class. We played baseball every day. And it was just, it was the national pastime at, at, at at that point in the in the, in the fifties, when we were playing, and I just kind of uh, drove on reading the magazines from uh, Sports Illustrated to Sport Magazine and various things of that nature. And I was always fascinated with the historical pieces on Walter Johnson or Christy Mathewson or Babe Ruth or any of those sort of things. When I got out of college, however, suddenly I had to uh, earn a living, so I, I kind of fell away a little bit as I. Uh, started my career in uh, healthcare management and then get married and a couple kids and it slows down. And I rediscovered it when I moved back to the Louisville area in 1981 and joined Sabre. So th that kind of uh, drives me. And it's just a, a question. So I'm looking for, trying to answer questions and I'm trying to find good stories. Yeah. And, and Lord knows that, things like this are, are good stories. So why don't, maybe let's, let's dig into some of that, right? So um, I do, though, think before we talk about how Louisville and these three other teams kind of got kicked out of, uh, of the National League in 1900, it's probably important to kind of understand uh, Louisville's uh, uh, professional beginnings. And we can, you know, I'm sure we could 
spent a whole hour getting into sort of the the, the tributaries that kind of led up even to that. But uh, this thing called the American Association, which you know we've learned over time, right, is is or wasn't necessarily <clears throat> excuse me a well, it wasn't sort of at the National League caliber, so to speak, right? And maybe there's some grist in that, into that statement itself. But this American Association maybe is probably helpful for our audience to understand because uh, it's not the American League. It's this sort of predecessor, but an important one, not only for the American League, but also the National League too, right? Yeah, the American Association uh, was a competitor of the uh, National Leagues and a, a quasi-partner of them when the, the National Agreement uh, uh, pops up in the uh, 1892 season. Uh, however, uh, they lasted for about 10 years. Now, you had other leagues that popped up, the Union Association in 1884 and the Players League in 1890 that lasted one season and were, were gone. But the American Association was was a, a competitor uh, and a partner uh, of over a 10-year period. Uh, there were battles between them, and the National League always treated the uh, American Association, even when they were uh, co-signatories of the National Agreement, as somewhat of a, a younger brother and not necessarily a better one. Certainly the National League was better capitalized. They had a little bit of head start from uh, 1876, which Louisville was was part of also very briefly until a gam- the first big gambling scandal hit in 1877 and, and, and Louisville kind of faded away and, and only lasted two years in the National League. But Louisville had a very good semi-pro team called the Eclipse. Uh, in the late 70s and early 80s. And when the American Association uh, uh, came along, it, it got started primarily by Western interests from uh, Pittsburgh to St. Louis. Uh, and, and Louisville was a, a, a major city in the, in the country at that time. In 1870, they were the 14th largest city in, in the country. And if you pull out the, the New York area cities like Brooklyn and Newark that, that were, were also part of that metropolitan area, and those that were impractical for baseball like New Orleans and San Francisco, Louisville was closing in on the top 10, bigger than Detroit, Cleveland, uh, uh, Pittsburgh, uh, Milwaukee, and, and on. So they were a transportation hub from the uh, from goods from the south coming north, and also sat on the Ohio River, so a lot of east-west uh, traffic going through there. Um, however, in 1875, businessmen in Louisville wanted to start a professional team. 1869, they had seen how the professional Cincinnati teams, a competitor of Louisville as cities for prominence on the Ohio River, uh, came along and uh, started that up. It happened to be just the same time that William Hulbert was about to launch the National League and and escape from the National Association after the 1875 season. And he started with a Western group of, of teams, St. Louis, Cincinnati, Louisville, and Chicago, as his uh, wedge in to try and then convince the Eastern teams, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, that sort of place, uh, to join him and essentially move from a player-based league to an owner-based league. 
uh, and he was successful. The first meeting of the uh, group was held in Louisville. Uh, it was speculated by some folks that he did that because the president of the Louisville Club was Walter Haldeman, who was the publisher of the Courier Journal, and he could he had the power to put a little uh, uh, gag order on all the local newspapers, and there nothing would get out before Hulbert went to New York and famously uh, uh, convinced uh, the Eastern teams to join him. And so the National League has been going since, what, 175 years now? Sure. It's a long, long, long time. But the association came along, and they were guys – they, there wasn't such a thing as major leagues in those those times. Certainly, the National League was at the top of the uh, uh, pyramid, but the American Association came along and said, "We're just as as good. We'll compete for the same players." They were willing to sign players from the National League. They were uh, uh, had a very similar schedule set up and uh, uh, followed much the same rules. There were some minor variations. And on they went uh, uh, through the, uh, their first season, and they outdrew the National League. Part of that is because the American Association had teams in uh, Philadelphia and New York, and the National League did not. In the late 1870s, uh, Hulbert tossed out New York and Philadelphia because they wouldn't make their final Western road trip. So they were in places like Worcester, Massachusetts and Troy, New York and Rochester and whatnot. Uh, and suddenly the American association was in the big cities and outdrew the national league. The national league uh, approached them or they approached the national league because certainly the national league was, was uh, Richer had more money and was had better posture, uh, went forward and signed the national agreement that linked them and one net, one minor league into this. The first time we started to see organized baseball come along in the uh, early 1880s. And off we went through the 1880s and we ended up seeing the, the, the beginning of World Series between the American Association and the uh, National League. Uh, we saw players traded between leagues. We saw battles to sign players, much like free agency today, because contracts were nowhere near as tight as they were. But we also saw the beginnings of reserve rules and, and, and those sort of things as the leagues and the individual teams were looking to protect their own interests. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because this is also, and we've talked about this on a number of different, from a number of different angles, right? This is also you know, it's also important, and and the, the chapters what one and two perhaps of Ken Burns's baseball documentary is, is helpful on all this, right? Is is I want to call it ragtagness, but there's sort of uh, these are sort of still the formative years, right? You're sort of alluding to the the term quote unquote professional, right? Because there's there's a whole bunch of things uh, going on at that time, right? Where uh, things like quote unquote professional baseball is looked upon maybe not necessarily as a noble profession, right? Uh, the, uh, certainly the, it was not. And, the and, rogue and, factor, right? And all that stuff, right? The players were, were, were not, you know, there was, there was no college players that are being drafted into the, the major leagues at that time. And these were just guys who could, who had athletic ability, had developed that ability and just wanted to live the way they wanted 
to live. They were a, a there were those that were happy-go-lucky. There were lots of drunkards within that, that, that bunch. There was a lot of irresponsibility. There was also very good players, very uh, uh, moral players, because you had the whole uh, Sabbatarian uh, uh, issue with Sunday baseball in, in certain cities and players who wouldn't play on Sunday and those sort of things. So there was this mixed bag, but the players were not a sophisticated uh, group of people. And neither were the owners, for that matter. They were still trying to, to figure out how to make this a paying proposition. They'd have good years and bad years. Now, there were teams that consistently made money. Uh, uh, Chicago in the National League, Boston in the National League, Philadelphia in the National League, St. Louis in the American Association, Cincinnati in the American Association was kind of up and down. But by and large, over half the leagues, half the teams in, in both leagues struggled in many, many seasons. Well, look, and it's also sort of the the other sort of uh, angle or rift, right? The National League not necessarily uh, uh, helpfully aiding and abetting uh, the American Association, right? The, uh, frankly, pejorative or, or derogatory uh, uh, perception of them as as the the American Association as the beer and whiskey league, right? Uh, the uh, it almost feels they they were called a lot of times river cities and not sort of as a positive thing, right? Or almost as a perception of sort of a down market and or uh, inferior, I guess, product to the National League thing, right? Um, it just seems that the National League, while uh, I guess on some levels uh, interested in having uh, a semi-competitor uh, and or a, uh, uh, you know, a, a World Series or pre-World Series kind of uh, structure near the end uh, was also at the same time maybe uh, not particularly excited about maybe either the brand uh, of play, um, the, uh, the, the the places and or the, the, the folks that were sort of part of it. And frankly, I think there was a sanctimony uh, 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 to it, right, where or sanctimoniousness, sorry. Uh, where uh, the National League, I guess, was uh, pretty restrictive on things like uh, selling beer at games, for example, and and these River City teams, so to speak, uh, embraced it, and maybe arguably is partially why why they're doing so well at the gate. Certainly, those those issues were throughout the 1870s, 1880s, and into the 1890s. In fact, the blue laws on Sunday baseball don't end for baseball until the 1920s. I think Philadelphia was the last uh, team that that uh, still worked in a city that had blue laws that that uh, restricted, didn't prohibit Sunday uh, uh, baseball. However, you're you're exactly correct there. The National League. If you look at their constitution in 1876, uh, their purpose was to control baseball, to make the rules and to kind of uh, 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 be the benign uh, dictator over all of this sort of thing. And I think you're right that they looked down upon the American Association. They certainly, if they had their their druthers, there would have been no American Association and the National League would simply have been at the top of the pyramid and, and ran things, and uh, very profitably uh, in all probability. However, the, the American Association, the, the country, even the, the Midwest and the East, was, was just getting too big. There were too many cities uh, growing that could support teams and go forward. 
with this sort of thing. And uh, they couldn't stop that. Uh, we will see when we, we talk about the uh, reduction that in the early 1890s, we first get the term big league because the National League suddenly became a 12-team league. And there was no, when they absorbed half of the American Association after a, a one-year war over certain players being assigned to them uh, out of the Players League debacle. So let, let's get into the 1890s then, right? So um, because that's when this, uh, I, 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 I guess the characterization is loose affiliation became uh, much more um, uh, directly uh, and officially connected between this American Association and the National League. Is that correct? Well, they, they had always been tied together since the early 1880s through the, the, the national agreement. Uh, and by the mid-1880s, uh, their playing rules were, were virtually identical. Uh, the differences came in, in, in how the leagues operated uh, uh, with the National League assuming the moral high ground of no Sunday baseball, no beer in the ballpark. Whereas when you get places like Cincinnati and St. Louis and Louisville, these are uh, cities with, with heavy uh, uh, German populations, Irish populations, and there was no problem in those cities uh, uh, having that uh, sort of, of, of uh, uh entertainment on Sundays and libation at the ballpark. There was also the issue that the American Association was always the cheaper admission league. They would have a, a bottom price of uh, 25 cents to the, the bleachers or the end of the grandstands. National League had a, a minimum of 50 cents. That certainly helped the National League because as long as they could draw a decent amount of folks, they had more money. And you, you see that in the signing of players. They could afford more uh, 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 to, to hold on to players. In the American Association, the only team that was, was always uh, financially successful and also because of that were uh, uh, competitively successful was the uh, St. Louis Browns uh, of Chris Vonderaar, who had wildly successful brewery, bars, integrated uh, amusements into his ballpark and did very, very well, won three or four pennants in a row and was a competitor, bitter competitor with uh, Al Spaulding's Chicago team. Well, so, I, yeah, so it seems like, though, the, the 90s, though, were kind of a time of, of sort of um, – uh, it, it sort of evolved from more of a, a coordination, I guess, and an understanding into something much more uh, centralized. Wow, well, what centralized? But uh, truly more incorporated, so to speak. Right to the point where, I guess, by the eighteen, the end of the the decade, right, you're looking at something that is much more solidified than where the decade kind of started. Right. You certainly are going to going to see. By the time you get to eighteen uh, to nineteen hundred, 
that is the, the, the time when the American League emerges out of the, the Western League and Van Johnson starts to be the competitor of the uh, of National League. And we get to what we consider is called sometimes the modern era because we understand the World Series of that time and American League versus National League. But I, I think uh, to a great extent throughout the uh, 1890s, the, the league's we're struggling because of some external factors and some internal factors. Externally, in 1893, the country went into recession, and the, the ball clubs of all sorts had difficulty drawing enough fans in. Uh, and in 1895, you start to get this talk of maybe the National League, which is now 12 teams, needs to go back to eight teams. And how are we going to get there? You had owners like Arthur Sodden in uh, Boston who said, I went through the uh, Union Association and the uh, uh, Players League buyout where the National League had to buy teams out to, to get them to leave the field. And he didn't want to have put any more money into that. And now suddenly they're going to have to buy out four more teams uh, and they just wanted them to go away and be careful. And that was part of this whole strategy that they, they developed to try and drive teams out because they couldn't make any money during the late 1890s simply because the national economy wasn't there and the way that the, the teams were. A 12-team league means you've got to go to a lot more places, and they aren't necessarily wealthy places that are, have a good ball team. So you lost home games, and suddenly you're on the road more. Expenses were higher, and folks were just struggling to, to keep franchises afloat. Uh, so, so that's interesting. So uh, some, some broader economic situations, right, and being 12 teams. And again, you know, at the precipice of 19, you know, 1900, right, that's, that almost feels uh, – uh, I want to call it like, I guess, sort of almost like a luxury and or unsustainable or challenging to sustain even in decent economic times, let alone sort of a, uh, a national sort of economic. But I, but I also get the sense that, too, and you kind of danced around it, but maybe I could sort of sort of pinpoint it. Uh, there also seems to be, I guess, sort of the uh, the beginnings, if you will, uh, of uh, really sort of a, a concentration of power, so to speak, around this thing called now professional baseball, right? And uh, from our previous conversations in and around sort of this topic, uh, a lot of people seem to kind of focus the uh, their energies around maybe this is where the seeds of uh, baseball's now famous um, uh, monopoly, if you will, or monopsony uh, kind of, uh, power, if you will, uh, uh, with uh, federal uh, support and help uh, kind of originated, right? This is, you know, you're talking about buying out other teams, right? Well, that sounds like a monopolist, if you will, at work, right? To, to get rid of a problem so that we can protect our uh, advantage, fair or otherwise. Well, certainly the, the 1880s and 1890s, you know, we're in the middle of the Gilded Age, uh, robber barons and all of those sort of things. Baseball was not the the level of standard oil or, or the, the, the big uh, uh, trusts that were going, but they acted like it within their own world. Uh, the idea that they could make their own rules and operate uh, starting in 1879 with the reserve rule, whereby 
teams could have a call on players uh, for the next season rather than have contracts run out and players were free agents. Uh, it was a way to, it was, it did two things. They were trying to keep salaries down because the players had no place else to go. And the other thing was they kept, if you were a good team, you got to keep your good players and nobody else was going to buy them out from you. And these rules started to flow through uh, all the way uh, uh, through into the uh, 1890s, whereby teams were just looking to protect themselves and they were trying to compete within themselves. There are stories of fights over schedules. I want 4th of July at home. No, no, no. I've got to have Memorial Day here. Boston has to have Patriot Day. All these sort of things. In, in 18, um, uh, 80, 1898, uh, they tried to run Louisville out of the league by taking – they had 14 uh, Sunday games, and they took all but three of them away from them hoping that they would lose money and just go away and uh, they would have one less team to have to, to buy out. But uh, the owner of the little team, Barney Dreyfus, who is a big part of the, the, the story uh, in 1899 and 1900, uh, was just a shrewder, harder fighter than, than that. And, and he was able to, to recapture most of his Sunday games. Well, uh, uh, okay. So as we as we kind of keep getting closer to sort of the uh, uh, the big bang, so to speak, uh, at, in eighteen ninety nine, uh, the it also though strikes me though that it, from what I understand, the play, if you will, and sort of the the dynamics of actually doing playing the, <clears throat> the games and the season and, and the competition and stuff, that too was uh, <clears throat> I don't know if it was fraying or, or devolving or, but that that was. Uh, quite a spectacle too. I mean, I, it was not uncommon, not only for, you know, the drinking and the, the, the roguishness and stuff and, and the various sort of levels of that, depending on what city you were in. But uh, it seems like it was, uh, I guess, body and rowdy uh, were sort of kind and gentle terms to kind of describe maybe how some of the, how some of the dynamics of the actual play were sort of unfolding during that time. Certainly the 1890s, you know, Bill James and his historic expert, uh, uh, Almanac says, you know, dirty baseball ruled the day. Those were the times where you tripped people, gave them a hit when they're coming around second base so that they couldn't get through. You cut bases. There were all sorts of things going on. Uh, spiking players, those sorts of, of, of things. You're, and the, the quintessential team of that was the old Orioles. John McGraw, Wilbert Robertson, and, and that sort of thing. But the Cleveland team with Patsy Tabot was, was very much like that. And Charlie Comiskey in, in uh, St. Louis and the American Association was not above those things either. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> I, you know, if, I, if I'm a, uh, a Hollywood uh, screenwriter, potentially, uh, that sounds like this, that could be great fodder for a um, – I guess fun is not maybe the right word, right? But but I mean, I, how would you characterize that? Was it sort of just roguish and anything goes, but, it, you know, it had boundaries to it? Or was it, did, did it sort of, you know, spill into nefariousness and or uh, criminality and any of that kind of stuff, right? I, I mean, it sounds like it was just a, a, an amazingly interesting and perhaps arguably wildly fun kind of experience, but 
I got to think that that maybe it got a little out of hand or maybe a lot out of hand in certain situations too. It, it, it did. Um, there, there are stories of, of the, the Baltimore Orioles uh, in the 1890s letting the grass grow uh, deeper in the outfield so they could hide baseballs. So if one was hit too deep, they could just pick one up as they were running along and throw it back in. Uh, John McGraw was known, he was a third baseman at that time, was known to kind of hook his finger over the belt of a, of a runner at third. So on a potential sacrifice fly, they would be delayed a little bit. There's a story that, that Pete Browning of Louisville uh, one time felt him doing that, unhitched his belt and ran anyway. And, and McGraw was just left there standing there holding his belt while he scored the the run. But there were all sorts of, of things going on. It was, uh, Part of the rise of the American League was Ben Johnson was trying to wash a lot of that away, and he did that through unquestionable support for his umpires. The players were just just ruthless. They they would hit umpires. They would throw the fans would throw things at them. There were regular uh, melees on the on the field. Uh, or they would pull their team off if they didn't like a decision that was 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 given. Lots of forfeits. It, it was not a a fan friendly sort of, of atmosphere. All right. Well, so you set the table then. So let's maybe get a little. Let's get a little closer to the the dramatic situation uh, and the and the trigger being pulled uh, at, after the eighteen ninety nine season. Uh, you're describing a league of of twelve teams. You're just, we, we've gotten into kind of the 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 dynamics of it, the um, uh, the divisions, if you will, the the the, the challenges of the, the broader economy and all that kind of stuff. So, give us a sense. And obviously, as a world expert in the uh, former Louisville uh, Colonels uh, part of this, uh, maybe set the table as to sort of what leads up and to specifically kind of what the dynamics were around this desire, this, this uh, uh, intention, if you will, to slim down and maybe even a little bit to, to get us going into why the four teams uh, in particular, Louisville included, were circled as the ones to kind of be lopped off. In the by the mid 1890s, it was pretty obvious to, to, to most observers that the 12 team league wasn't working uh, financially or competitively. Uh, with 12 teams, you had way too many teams out of the pennant race long before July 4th. Therefore, you couldn't make expenses when you travel to those places. And Louisville, by the way, but I didn't mean to interrupt, but this is also is this still around kind of the time when uh, teams wouldn't necessarily always play the same amount of games, like they were sort of the lopsided sort of schedules and stuff, or was this literally you had to play full out schedules? They they never they didn't make up all of the games that might be rained out, or if a train got delayed and you couldn't get to town for a couple of days. Uh, uh, if particularly late in the season, if there were no open dates, you w- you wouldn't uh, uh, make those up. So there were variations, but they weren't big. You're talking five, six game sort of variations in a hundred to 120 game schedule. Got it. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but yeah, okay, makes sense. So, the, but the, the 
but there were and there were a lot of of open dates because teams tended to play exhibition games as they were traveling to try and make some more money as they would would uh, uh, go along, which was a, a managers who could schedule lucrative uh, exhibition games were highly prized, even if they weren't particularly good at managing a team uh, uh, as, as they went through. Uh, but back to the uh, difficulties of the league, uh, monetarily because of the national economy, 12 teams weren't working, and there were two lines of thought of what they needed to do. One line was, let's get back to eight teams. We can make it work that way. It worked in the past. We'll just get rid of four teams, and let's find a way to do it as cheaply as we, we can. The other thought, and this came from uh, uh, Ned Hanlon, who was uh, owner-manager of the Baltimore team, said, let's add teams back to 16 and we'll have our two leagues again and off we go. However, Hanlon may have been a little bit uh, disingenuous there because his team was one of those that was going to be gone. However, what was going on within the leagues is that you had developing since 1890 what was called syndicate baseball. This is where individual owners would own pieces of multiple teams in the league. Uh, Brooklyn and Baltimore uh, were owned by the same people and were uh, had an interlocking directory uh, uh, running those teams. C Cleveland and St. Louis was owned by the Robson brothers. Uh, and we end up with the 1899 Cleveland Spiders, the, the god-awful team. Uh, most uh, losses and lowest uh, winning percentage under 200 uh, uh, for a team ever because the Robesons also owned St. Louis. They moved all their good players, including people like Cy Young, from Cleveland to uh, uh, St. Louis. Uh, you had Chicago, Boston. A number of teams had a piece of the New York Giants because they were always having – they were struggling uh, – uh, at the gate uh, in those days. Brooklyn was having trouble, on and on and on. So the idea was, the idea that we can get another league going and, and go back to this 1880s when we were doing fairly well with two 18 leagues didn't really go very far. And in fact, people tried to, to gin up a new American association. You saw in late in the 1890s, the development of Ban Johnson trying to maneuver his Western League, renamed the American League, into major league status, which he was successful with by 1901, but he was still, still a minor league operation when this was all going on. The owners were trying to say, the only way to get folks out is to either bankrupt them or pay them off and get them gone. Uh, and there were all sorts of machinations going on from, from cooking the schedules to uh, signing uh, all the good players from a, from a team uh, uh, to the uh, uh, better teams. Uh, but the teams that were targeted, Baltimore, Louisville, Washington, and Cleveland. Brooklyn was also in that list uh, uh, occasionally. Were just 
bottom feeders. They just could not, they were undercapitalized teams who either had trouble at home, Cleveland example of this, where they just were back to the, 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 the morality question. Uh, the people didn't want Sunday baseball and they couldn't live without Sunday baseball. Uh, so when they bought the uh, uh, St. Louis team, uh, they just moved all their good players over there and essentially abandoned Cleveland and played all their games on the road. Louisville's problems was chronically undercapitalized. Going back to 1876, Louisville would have a good budget. We want to, in the 1890s, their goal was to get a $50,000 capitalization. They rarely got more than $20,000. And you're not going to compete with the Chicago's and Boston's and Philadelphia's of the world on a short bankroll. Therefore, you're signing lots of new players. We didn't have the minor leagues like we had today that the majors could own where they could call players up and down. They have a, a, a a farm system they could could pull from so it always cost you money to bring somebody up and you weren't quite sure they're doing well uh, baltimore's problem was good teams no fans would come for some reason baltimore's not in those days a very good uh, baseball town and brooklyn's problem was I'm not quite sure what Brooklyn's problem. They should. They had a plenty of population. They had a decent uh, uh, owner and a decent team, but they just couldn't draw very well. And these were the teams they're saying, you know, pick four of the five and let's get rid of them. And then we'll have our old A-team league and off we go again. The difficulty was they couldn't quite figure out how to do it cheaply. When they've raised the issue directly with the teams around the uh, late 1898 uh, and said, okay, we want you four, Louisville, Cleveland, uh, Baltimore, and uh, Washington just go away. Uh, they said, fine, but we want a lot of money. They were asking for around $150,000 to $200,000 in compensation to go away. Nobody wanted to pay that. Well, and, and sorry, and some of those were actually for sale, right? Where they were kind of also... They, they, they were, were. Yeah. They were. The, so, that, so, so even more resistance, I guess, to paying off teams that, a couple of teams that were for sale, right? Right. But if you, but if they sold them to somebody with more capital, suddenly you wouldn't be able to get rid of them even more so because nobody's going to buy something just to have it bought out from, from, from underneath them. Louisville was for sale. Uh, Cleveland was for, for sale. Uh, uh, Baltimore always struggled. Washington said they would, they would sell their team if somebody would buy it. Uh, but nobody wanted to be the first guy out and they wanted the, as much money as they could get from the established league, the national league, uh, uh, to go away. Uh, in the end, the National League did achieve that to some extent when they bought them out, but that's why they didn't close out in uh, 1898. Now, they had another problem. When the Players League went belly up in 1890, and after the little war between the American Association and uh, National League in 1891, a new national agreement was signed that formed the 12-team big league. Within that, there was a clause that said, these are the 12 teams that are in there, 
this agreement will run for 10 years and you can't drop somebody from the league uh, without their consent during that period. So the National League was stuck with 12 teams till 1902 if nobody was willing to go. That's why they kept asking for more money because they knew they had the leverage to ask. So uh, let's also now throw in Barney Dreyfus, uh, previously mentioned, right? Because uh, he's integral to the story, and and uh, surprisingly to me, uh, even even more so down the road as as a member of the Baseball Hall of Fame and all that stuff. Uh, but his uh, he he was the owner of the Louisville Club, right? Maybe maybe a little bit of a, an entree of him into this mix because he plays a pretty crucial role uh, in a lot of this. He certainly did. Certainly did. Uh, Dreyfus be, became uh, uh, bought some stock in the a Louisville team around uh, uh, 1895. And I'm sorry, he's 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 a he's kind of a a a, a, a liquor guy by trade, yeah. His his family was uh, uh, Barney was a, a a German national who came to this country in the uh, early 1880s. After some cousins of his came here about 10 years earlier, the Bernheim brothers. The Bernheim brothers had set up uh, uh, a distillery in Paducah, Kentucky, far western Kentucky, and a few years later moved it to Louisville. They are the ones who developed I.W. Harper bourbon. And if you, nobody knows that, go, go watch uh, the James Bond film on His Majesty's uh, Secret Service. There's, that's what Bond drinks during that, that movie. But I.W. Harper was a very high-end uh, bourbon whiskey, and they were doing very well. Barney went uh, uh, out to Paducah and, and worked as a, a, uh, a clerk for a while, moved back to Louisville, and it was his cousins who owned this. They were the Bernheim brothers. He was uh, related to them on his mother's side of the family. He was a clerk there. He had some health problems. We're not sure what it was. Uh, but he was also a big, big fan of baseball for some reason. Uh, and off he goes uh, to invests in the Louisville team in 1895. He becomes secretary and a board member by the end of 1895 and uh, accumulates enough stock in the next two years that he's the president of the club. Uh, and Dreyfus is, is pragmatic and shrewd. Uh, don't ever, you know, he, he's the kind of guy, you, you, when you shake hands with him, when you let go, count your fingers because he knows how to make things happen. He knew pretty clearly by the end of 1898, Louisville wasn't going to survive one more year. Either the leagues were going to bounce them out, force them out, bankrupt them. And he ended up looking for, he wanted to stay in baseball. So he started looking for another team to buy. He looked at St. Louis. He looked at Chicago. He focused on, on Pittsburgh. And that's where we know him the best because he did end up buying the uh, Pittsburgh Pirate franchise uh, uh, immediately uh, before the, the leagues bought out all the teams. He got about 47% and he bought the rest of it within two years. So, uh, so well, let me back up for a second. So that is so, okay. So this shrewdness of him, of his, uh, he had the, so he's basically angling to kind of, uh, gain full control of the colonels knowing 
that they're not sort of long because they're, they're, they don't have their right dance partners. They've been under, they, they finished last, I think, in 1899, right? That season, right? So. Uh, no, they, they, uh, they were close to, I think they were 11th okay. out, of, out of 12, but you're exactly correct. They were a sorry franchise. But so, but so if, uh, were they, so was he, Dreyfus, was he intending on, or maybe, maybe better term, going through the motions to, show that Louisville was going to play in 1900, but all the while kind of knowing and then sort of angling to find another sort of place, I guess, in Pittsburgh uh, to I think that, have an angle. I, I think that's a correct uh, assumption uh, on this, that he was playing for time. He was trying to maneuver to where he would ha- have the most uh, leverage uh, somewhere. And to have that leverage, Louisville couldn't, be dropped from the league. He had to have something in there that gave people a reason to, to uh, not ignore him. Uh, he, he did some in 1899. And I just found this about two years ago at the hall of fame. He got Louisville to, when he sold his stock at the, uh, at the end of October of 1899 in, in the Louisville club while he was looking to buy another club, Pittsburgh was his number one uh, uh, target. He bought an option to control all the reserve players on the Louisville team. That includes players like Honus Wagner, Fred Clark, Rube Waddell, Claude Ritchie, Tommy Leach, a very nice group of players. Some, and, of them, some of them Hall of Famers, by the way. Uh, two of them, the three of them are Hall of Famers, although Waddell was just kind of a, a, a packet of, of, of uh, potential at this time. He really didn't develop until uh, around 1902. But he was this hard-throwing, happy-go-lucky kind of, of, uh, of guy who, was a, who gave manager Fred Clark all sorts of, of problems. But several hundred other stories out there about Clark and uh, Waddell, but he controlled them. And it was that control that allowed him to buy Pittsburgh because he could deliver the Louisville pay, the players. But the leagues were still trying to get rid of teams. And this, his trying to buy Pittsburgh was in the middle of all this machinations that were going on. The national league set up what they called a circuit reduction committee in the uh, mid-1899, trying to figure out who should go and how much should they pay them. It had two purposes. One, the number one purpose was to get rid of teams, get back to an 18 league. Number two, they had to hold off Van Johnson trying to move the uh, Western Association into a, a, a major league status and a attempt by the Spinks in St. Louis, who ran the Sporting News, and Francis Richter, who ran Sporting Life in Philadelphia, to to uh, uh, Sporting uh, Weeklies, to restart the American Association. They signed uh, Cap Anson as the president of this new organization. They had John McGraw interested in in uh, running a uh, uh, the Baltimore franchise, owning the Baltimore franchise, and this was something that worried the uh, the owners in the National League. What are we going to do if we buy out these teams? We're short of money, and we got still have competition out there. So, so there's an existential threat to the National League from uh, potential competitors. Then, 
And, and so I guess it does the logic they basically mean that shrinking down to eight teams will strengthen us as well as help our immediate financial cash flow to protect and or whatever from the outside uh, threats? Yes, that, that, that was, that was the, the thought process because they, they, they took, they had different sense of seriousness about the various teams that could, uh, 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 leagues that, that could compete with them. And they were trying to make it that the teams couldn't, uh, 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 compete with them. One of the reasons they were slow in buying out teams is they were trying to con- continue to control those territories as far into the future as they could so that this new American association or Ban Johnson and the Western association couldn't move east into some uh, territories that the National League exits. So they were trying to continue to control that land, ballparks, and players, if they could, even if they got rid of the franchises. So how does the deed, So I, I, you know, we could probably go another hour on sort of the, I, the syndicate model or, or the, in, uh, the insider dealing, sh- shall we say, of the owners. Uh, the, the fact that a Dreyfus could actually, you know, own essentially one team and, and then buy access to another team and then Frankly, as you know, as we've seen in other situations, he ultimately takes all the best stuff of Louisville, especially after they're contracted, and brings them over to Pittsburgh. And, and lo and behold, Pittsburgh is a, is a solid team almost out of the gate. Uh, but I, I, how does the deed get done then? I mean, you know, but, I, yeah, take us in the room if you can to the extent that you know yeah. and learned it. The, uh, on on Dreyfus's end with, with Louisville, he had his option ran out at the end of December 1899. So he had to cut a deal before then. And the National League was trying to extend the period that they still controlled the territory. So they weren't going to buy out these, these teams until late in the winter or early spring because to keep a, a check on other leagues moving into those territories. So, so Dreyfus used this option that he had on there. He, he bought the option for $5,000. Louisville owed three or four banks in Louisville. Uh, they owed uh, with mortgages uh, on their uh, uh, property. Uh, they didn't own their ballpark. That was owned by some of the directors. So they didn't quite have the assets to, 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 to do that. But they also owed Barney some money. They owed several of the uh, other directors money. They probably owed somewhere in the neighborhood of thirty, thirty-five thousand dollars, and they didn't have. I, I doubt seriously they had five thousand dollars cash on hand. So when Dreyfus pays them five thousand for the option, they at least have enough money to to, to continue into the, uh, the the new year. But part of that option is if if Dreyfus did deliver the players to another team, he would pay Louisville $25,000. So Louisville is listening to it very carefully. They have to stay alive so that they control those players uh, under uh, Barney's option uh, through whatever the transaction gets done. They are successful with that. Barney buys uh, uh, Pittsburgh in uh, uh, December of 1899. The deal is closed late December, and they uh, elect Dreyfus uh, uh, president of the club 
uh, early January, and he's he's free and clear. Louisville has paid off most of their debts. They probably still owe somewhere between five and ten thousand dollars, but they're also now trying to get a payment from the national league to make them go away. They want twenty twenty five thousand dollars. National league doesn't want to pay that. Uh, Louisville does not own their ballpark, and their ballpark burned down uh, in August of eighteen ninety nine. So they didn't have a lot of, of assets. However, they went forward. Uh, when Dreyfus finished his transaction with Pittsburgh, the problem Louisville had is they had no players because all their reserve players went to Pittsburgh. So the, the president of the National League said, you don't have a team anymore. We're just going to let you go away. They quickly made a trade with Pittsburgh, got four players, signed, drafted five, uh, six other players, had 10 players under contract. So they were still alive. In the end, they ended up getting $10,000, essentially paid off all their debts, and everybody just went away. The other teams, places like Cleveland, Baltimore, and uh, Washington, either owned their ballparks or, or had uh, a, a property that was uh, owned by the ball club. And in the end, the National League paid somewhere between $100,000 and $120,000 to the four teams to get them to go away. Uh, Louisville made a flirted with the American League and, and made an effort to uh, join the new American Association. But when they did, they just to give you an idea of, of how difficult it, it was for Louisville to, to raise money, they set a budget of, of, of $50,000 to incorporate a new team after the old one was bought out, and they raised $16,000. It just wasn't going to work. Louisville, to this day, is the only one of the teams that was dropped from the uh, National League in 1900 who never became a major league team again. Now, they've been a wildly successful minor league team in the very high minors from 1903 to today. They were the first team to draw a million fans in the minor, minor leagues in, uh, like, 83 or 84. Uh, but they are never going to be a major league team. Louisville got past the population boom of the of, of the Gilded Age passed Louisville by. Suddenly they were the, by 1900, they're the 25th or 30th largest city in the country. And we started to see the Great Lakes cities grow and that sort of thing. So, so Louisville is where they belong right now in, in the high minors. Yeah, so all of that's really interesting because it really does, and there's a bunch of other angles to the story for, for, for other episodes, right? You're talking about uh, the arrival of other leagues, uh, the expansion, I guess, of interest of baseball, the, uh, the, the, certainly the uh, solidification of, of some of these uh, issues around sort of uh, monopoly or, or trying to sort of centralize power and control, uh, the beginnings of the, you know, obviously the labor issues that sort of come with that, uh, the joint ownerships, so many dramatic sort of pieces to this. Um, but as we sort of round third here, let me, let's, um, I guess, sort of uh, talk about maybe sort of sort of the things that sort of have evolved because of it. I mean, obviously Louisville not uh, attaining uh, that top tier major league status again. Where would uh, you as the, uh, the, uh, the, the main historian for all of this, right? You're probably the best person to ask this question. In your mind, where would you place 
the legacy, the soul, and even maybe the the statistical records and 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 the other sort of historical artifacts, I guess, of this original Louisville Cardinals. Uh, Cardinals. <laughs> I, I knew I was. Gonna, <laughs> I knew at some point I was going to say that the Colonel's uh, uh, legacy and story. Is it in the soul of the Pittsburgh Pirates? He asks somewhat naively, but maybe not so. No, I don't think so. Well, certainly the, the, the core of the Louisville players end up in Pittsburgh and Barney Dreyfus ends up in Pittsburgh, as does the secretary of the uh, uh, Louisville team, uh, Harry Pulliam, who then in, in 1902 or 1903 became president of the National League. Uh, Louisville ends up moving lock, stock, and barrel pretty much t- to Pittsburgh. But there's no real sense uh, that that Louisville uh, uh, continues on. You don't uh, partially uh, because uh, uh, franchises in the 1880s and 1890s came and went at a, at a, at a clip we wouldn't recognize. Uh, uh, today, uh, when you look at uh, uh, the St. Louis Browns of the American Association in the 1880s, they are the ancestor of the St. Louis Cardinals. When they moved to the National League, that's that's who it was that that came on through. The uh, the Philadelphia Athletics is a name that was used by half a dozen teams in pro baseball, and they had no connection to Connie Mack. Oakland and the various movements uh, to Kansas City and Oakland that they've had. But no, I don't, I don't see Louisville being connected there. I think they just end. And, and at the end of the 1899 season, Louisville is done. They're no longer a member of the National League. They never again will be. There's no real connection to them. Pittsburgh was a, a, a standalone franchise for many years, at least a decade before they receive the Louisville players. They have their own history. Okay, so that, that, I guess that so that that makes sense. But I, I'll, one last sort of devil's advocate, then though, uh, could you? I mean, could you make the argument that you know Dreyfus's uh, arrival to Pittsburgh in what we've already established was a relatively crucial time in baseball's history, given all the the new competition and, and, and uh, the arrival of the American league and the, the rebirth of the AA and all that stuff um, that, and, and, and clearly obviously, you know, various innovations, right. That, that, that Dreyfus sort of brought into the mix. Now I, did they originate in Louisville? Probably not, but consider the inventor of the world series, you know, for example, uh, obviously a baseball hall of famer, uh, you know, voted in literally just about a decade ago. Um, or am I giving him too much credit for his contributions to the Pirates? I mean, I, I guess this is another story for another day around sort of how solid were the Pittsburgh Pirates at the time. And, you know, was Dreyfus himself, as well as what he brought to the table from the Louisville franchise, a significant injection of good stuff that could or should be. But it seems to me that you're, you're kind of, you're, you're, guardrailing that uh, Louisville existence uh, and, and cordoning that off from the Pittsburgh Pirates' uh, ongoing success since? I, I think so. I, I don't see anything in Louisville's history that, uh, other than they were able to, to acquire some potentially very good players, they traditionally had 
terrible starts to seasons, even with Honus Wagner and Fred Clark from 1896, 1897, 1895, I don't think they ever finished higher than ninth of the 12-team league in the 1890s after they won the pennant in, in, in 1890. They fell off very quickly. However, I think Dreyfus uh, learned a great deal uh, through the of how to uh, wade through the the political waters of the National League uh, through his ownership of the the Louisville Colonels. And when he goes to to uh, uh, Pittsburgh, he is a key figure in bringing up the the peace between the American League and the National. League. Now he does that in his own self-interest because part of the deal is American League won't put a team in Pittsburgh, and he he, he wins that one. He he gets together with the Boston uh, uh, American League uh, owner in 1903, and they sign their own deal to hold the World Series. And in 1904, uh, John Brush and John McGraw say, I'm not going to play that upstart American League, and we don't have a World Series, but we end up with the Brush rules in 1905, and we've had, other than 1994, we've had the World Series ever ever since. Dreyfus was also one of the first to build a massive stadium when he built Forbes Field around, what, 1908, 1909. This was a marvel. That, that suddenly we had this concrete and steel uh, uh, ballpark that was just massive for the, uh, for the time. You've got to remember that the fate of ballparks uh, uh, up until the, the concrete and steel period was they burned down. There are none of them left anymore. Uh, none of them, most of the times when you got a new stadium, it's because the old one burned. Uh, uh, those were the, the difficulties with wooden, wooden ballparks. But Dreyfus also was, was going through, and he, he was uh, critical to the, the league in the 1917-1918 uh, uh, period, getting them through the war years. And uh, Pittsburgh had fallen on tougher times. They, after about 1910, they weren't as strong a team, but Dreyfus was one of the critical owners throughout his period. Uh, Dreyfus stayed president of the uh, uh, Pittsburgh Pirates until 1932 when he died. Uh, and then it was taken over by his wife and ultimately by his son-in-law, Bill uh, Benzwanger, who ran the team until like 1946. So it was almost a 50-year run of uh, the Dreyfus family running Pittsburgh. All right, I'm going to beat a dead horse, but uh, I, 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 we're always interested uh, in this little show, and you know, we're, this is our little niche, so we, we dig deep into it and 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 solidify it by each and every episode. Uh, we're always interested to sort of understand potentially. Sometimes it's pretty straightforward. Sometimes, and many times, actually, it's not. Is to where these various histories of things that have, you know, uh, dead ended themselves, so to speak, kind of could legitimately reside, right? And and you know, there's various aspects of that, right? You know, the, the monetary gains, you know, could we resurrect the logos and, you know, make some money off of that? Or, But frankly, it's also history, right? You know, where, where's the right sort of uh, uh, sided, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, domiciling of, of history that came, you know, who's got the rights to it legitimately? Um, I, I guess where I would always just generally ask, ask the question, and maybe you don't know the answer to that, maybe you don't have an opinion, maybe you do. Where do you think then this colonel's history, which, by the way, we didn't talk about, but 
you know, they, they did win the American Association Championship in 1890, which happened to be Dreyfus's first year of ownership, right? And that it, itself was an interesting story because they were generally a moribund franchise, but they kind of literally went sort of that worst to first kind of thing and, and, and won it all in, you know, proceeding back to it, to their, their willful ways shortly thereafter. But um, is it, is any of this history remembered, uh, domiciled anywhere? Uh, does the, the, the current minor league franchise uh, lay claim to it because it was Louisville? Uh, do people care? Uh, or is it just kind of truly withered away and, and you and I are the only, only ones maybe talking about it? No, no. There, there are folks in Louisville, and there are old American Association fans, uh, or uh, not not those that visited the games, uh, who who still re- remember Louisville. Louisville, when they uh, uh, reappeared in the uh, uh, American Association in uh, 1983, had a major display going back into their major league days uh, in the concourse at the stadium, and all of those. Uh, uh, photographs and and pictures that they have, uh, I assume is is in the uh, uh, Slugger Park now uh, downtown since they moved out of the uh, uh, fairgrounds about ten years ago, but uh, they they do follow uh, a little bit. Pete Browning is still a, a fairly well known name, the the star player, particularly through the. Uh, uh, 1880s. You'll you'll hear the name Chicken Wolf and Guy Hecker uh, pop up in stories in the uh, Courier Journal from time to time. And then you've got really oddball people like me who who study these things and write about them. Uh, I've written extensively about about Hecker and uh, the the god awful Louisville team in 1889 that became, as you say, the first to go worst to first, winning the pennant in uh, 1890. Uh, making it to the World Series, which got s- several games snowed out in Brooklyn. Uh, an- another set of stories. All right, last question. I, I think Louisville. I think Louisville is 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 gone, but they, they are not forgotten. Uh, there are uh, uh, people that are interested in the 19th century game, and certainly Louisville from 1876 to uh, uh, 1900 was a, a key part of these sort of things, and a, a they have a rich history to, to, to grab onto. All right. Last, last question. And, and it, it, it does bring us into sort of 2020, 2021 terms. Uh, what is your sense of the current bats franchises uh, uh, opportunity for uh, survival and success, given the minor league uh, baseball contraction, the COVID situation we're all in uh, and uh I guess what seems to be also now encroaching success from uh, the USL uh, Louisville soccer franchise and, and, and just other dynamics. Uh, what of minor league baseball in Louisville and, um, uh, you know, just baseball in general in Louisville? Uh, healthy, questionable, um, worried for it, what? I think, I think it's, it, it's healthy. The, the fortunate part for, for, for Louisville in the, all the machinations of, of the major leagues trying to, to slim down their minor leagues is that all the cuts are coming at the bottom and the rookie leagues in the, uh, uh, A leagues, some in the uh, double A, double A leagues. Louisville's sitting there at the triple A level and uh, I don't think 
after the reorganization back in the late 90s that did away with the American Association and you just have the Pacific Coast League and the American Association, the major, they, there are whatever number of teams are in the major leagues, that's how many teams are going to be in AAA. They need, the majors need AAA teams for a couple of reasons. One, they don't do a lot of developing of players at that level. That happens more at the AA level. But it is a staging area when they need to get somebody who's hurt or to, to bring up somebody that's hot to, to fill in for a doubleheader or uh, uh, somebody that, that gets hurt. I don't think that Louisville has draws well. Uh, they don't draw as spectacularly as they did in the uh, 1980s, but they're a solid uh, 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 franchise and they, they will continue. The Louisville has had professional softball you mentioned the, the soccer team there was a professional hockey team for a while they don't seem to last much it's by and large a college town between university of kentucky and the university of, of louisville in, in interest and just count the pages in the sports section you get a get a picture of that but the uh, the louisville bats are a, a downtown ballpark uh, the owners who are active within the community, I think they're going to be just just fine in the near and intermediate future. Well, be careful. Our, 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 our basketball pal, Dan Issel, very, very uh, interested in trying to get the uh, the, the, the uh, Kentucky Colonels uh, sort of resurrected uh, from their old ABA days into an NBA franchise. And God bless, we, we continue to root for his success to somehow get an NBA franchise. So may, maybe yeah. there's a little glimmer of – uh, top tier professional uh, uh, resuscitation, so to speak, and that's possible. And when you say say Dan Essel, Dan Essel and I were were classmates at the University of Kentucky. Uh, I, my roommate had several classes with him, and, and Dan was was the hero uh, of the of the basketball team in, in in those days. But he is also wildly successful in his uh, retirement. Uh, with his horse farms and uh, breeding operations and whatnot. And there's always talk of bringing a professional basketball team to Louisville. And it just doesn't quite work out that they're going to have issues of scheduling at the uh, uh, Yum Center uh, because University of Louisville controls that they're going to have to figure that sort of thing out. the the community is split almost 50-50 between UK and U of L and, and basketball loyalties and, and whatnot. It has always been difficult to sustain any sort of professional operation other than the historic baseball team at the AAA level uh, in Louisville. All righty then. Thank you so much to uh, Bob for a, a wonderfully interesting and intriguing conversation about a topic uh, that I now know a lot more about for sure. And uh, let's see. The uh, article uh, is called Four Teams Out, the National League Reduction of 1900. Uh, it is uh, authored by Bob Bailey. It came out in 1990. It is part of a wonderful compilation just out now from our friends at the University of Nebraska Press called Saber 50 at 50, the Society for American Baseball Research's 50 Most Essential Contributions to the Game. Uh, it is uh, in a beautiful hardcover edition. Uh, it is uh, a, 
uh, an amazing collection of uh, a tremendous survey of articles uh, that uh, truly kind of give you the, the heart and the spirit. Uh, some of it statistical, some of it uh, uh, curious, some of it comical, uh, but altogether uh, a wonderful exploration of the history of baseball uh, in convenient uh, written book form. Um, of course, you can uh, purchase a copy of that wherever fine books are found. Uh, and of course, if you'd like to buy it through our website and give us a couple of shekels of love, keep our lights on during the holidays, we couldn't appreciate that more. And of course, you go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Search up this episode. I think it's 191. Yeah, with Bob Bailey. And uh, you will find a convenient link to this book. And frankly, all the other great stuff that uh, you can have delivered uh, overnight or the next day via Amazon Prime, whatever. Uh, and like I said, we'll get a couple of uh, a very small uh, amount of uh, pixie dust uh, to uh, put into our, our coffers. Uh, like I said, to keep our lights and uh, now the heat as the winter months approach uh, on uh, to keep this little show coming your way each and every week. Uh, while you're on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, you can also search up all of our old episodes. Every stinking single, absolute one of them uh, are there. All 190 or so uh, are there for you to uh, stream, uh, uh, to download, to, to share with your friends, do whatever you want. Um, and of course, any of the books featured there, of course, or, or other forms of media. Uh, if somebody, uh, one of our guests has uh, was uh, promoting something at the time, you can buy those uh, books or items there through those links uh, in those episodes as well. Of course, the easiest way to enjoy all of our old episodes is to subscribe to us, for God's sakes, on your favorite podcast player, whatever that might be. Is it Spotify? Is it still Apple? Is it Google Podcasts? Is it Stitcher? Doesn't matter. It's Pandora, whatever. You know, we've, we're all, we're everywhere. You can even, you can even just stream us uh, directly on YouTube if you'd like. Just by, but whatever, for however you do it, just subscribe to us. And then of course, uh, if there's an opportunity in that uh, podcatcher environment uh, to uh, rate and review us, hopefully favorably, we, uh, we'd we appreciate that a lot because that helps other people like you uh, find, discover, and hopefully enjoy uh, this show. And they'll tell two friends and so on and so on. And and it'll be an amazing uh, experience as we get more and more listeners into our, our little merry uh, band of um, of listenership. We appreciate that. Uh, you can also, of course, follow us on social media. On uh, Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. On Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you will find a Facebook page devoted to us. Uh, you want to send us an email? Go right ahead. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And yeah, we even have a weekly newsletter. Uh, just go to the website and uh, search up. Uh, I don't know exactly what tab it's in, but you'll find it. It's relatively easy to find. Uh, just send us your email and your name. And uh, you'll be, uh, you're in, you're good to go. You're in the little VIP club and you'll, you'll know uh, hopefully over the weekend uh, as to what our next upcoming episode uh, shall be. Uh, let's see, last but not least, of course, uh, you know him, you love him, you can't live without him. He is the great, the one, the only Dr. Jerry Payne in, uh, in the Atlanta metropolitan area. Thank you, sir, for your uh, twiddling of knobs and uh, editing of, uh, of, virtual videotape we uh, or audio tape we appreciate it as always that's jerry Payne audio excellence and uh i wish you nothing but excellence uh for the next week uh and then some hang tight hang uh, tough everybody uh holiday season i guess is approaching and uh please whatever you do uh during the thanksgiving holiday and whatever please be safe please be smart 
use those masks and um, let's all get through this together. And uh, we want to see you right here next week uh, with your earbuds present for another fun-filled episode of your favorite podcast, Wink Wink. All right, thanks for listening. We'll uh, hopefully talk to you next week. Please, again, be safe, everybody, and uh, bye-bye.